All right, you guys, I promised tight, so let me make this tight. I'm Dawn Panconian. This is Myth, Ritual, and Symbolism. Today is October 4th. I'm going to talk to you about moral panics and fear. I thought I would start by saying to you, I'm talking to you about this in a class on Myth, Ritual, and Symbolism because it seems to me that so very often the fodder, the, the content of our moral panics, our fears, is pulled from our sacred narratives and so witches are perhaps the most obvious example but I was thinking through to some of the examples that Roger Lancaster wrote on his guide to the uses of fear I was thinking about the example of putting razor blades into Halloween candy in the 80s and this kind of US-wide panic about Halloween candy and I was thinking okay but how do I map that onto the past and I was I arrived at this, you know what, like that's just poison in a 1980s modern form, right? And so it was a borrowing back of all of these sacred narratives that have poisoning at their center and, and, and using that narrative and, and the fear that lives on in those sacred narratives. Um, so all of that is a really quick way to say to you, I think that it makes sense to stop and talk about fear, not because I want you to think that myths are always about fear. Um, I think myths can use fear, they can use hope, they can use all sorts, like myths are probably best at living on, at transcending generations precisely because they evoke in us emotional responses and fear is amongst those. Also, um, Jojo, you asked something about fear and disgust, and I was really interested in how you put those into the same question, and I was thinking, you know what? Disgust works too. Um, disgust historically has meant something else to me than fear, but disgust is another kind of a trigger. It is something that um, I think about disgust as closely related to, not always, but often smell, and then I think of smell as closely related, obviously, to our emotional experience. This has to do with where um, olfaction is processed inside of our brains. And then um, emotional experience is also really closely related to memory. So there's this kind of easy explanation for why things that disgust us are remembered by us, for example. Um, why can't we forget these things? And, and fear then too. I'm not sure if the logic is the same, the, the neurology is the same, but fear is another emotion that, that allows things to, to live on and, and that it makes sense then that the kinds of narratives that are most likely to transcend generations, they don't just transcend generations because they function, because they stabilize society, but there's another layer to them, right? They also evoke emotional response. Um, and so those are the two sides of why are we talking fear in this class? Why are we talking moral panic? We're also doing this just because I might never in my life get another chance to talk to you about moral panics. I might never in my life get another chance to teach you that guide to fear by Roger Lancaster. I left as a follow-up read Don Kulik's 400,000 Swedish perverts. Maybe you didn't get time for it. That's fine. Just know like those two rights are superstar rights um, by anthropologists of the present, both if we had gods in anthropology, both Kulik and Lancaster would be gods. Um, I wanted to tell you where Lancaster is writing his work from. Let me start by telling you, Don Kulik is, 
uh, since he turned his dissertation into a book, he's been really widely taught. So as a, as a really young anthropologist, he was already really widely read. He's kind of a rock star in anthropology. He's allowed to be smug. He's allowed to do research into the social construction of quote unquote good sex in Sweden, for example, and put out an article in GLQ that's titled 400,000 Swedish perverts, right? Like there's this smugness to this title and there's this smugness to this, right? Even though ultimately what he's really writing about is a moral panic around men who answered yes to have you ever paid for sex or sexual favors on a survey, right? Like if you run the math, you take that statistic and you map it onto the population of Sweden, you run the math, you get, okay, by law, purchasing sex is considered perversion in Sweden. And so suddenly you have this like new awareness of like the media picks up this finding and they're publishing it everywhere. There's this brand new awareness in Sweden of 400,000 Swedish perverts, right? And and Kulik is unpacking that. He's saying, what does this do? What is this pushing this act, this practice to the margins do for society? How does it stabilize society? What does it do for Sweden, etc.? There, you don't even have to read that article now. You've got it. All of that is to say to you, if Don Kulik's being smug in this right, Lancaster's not being smug at all. He is smug often. He's they're both just really eloquent, smart writers. They do really good research and they can be really funny and they can leave you laughing and they can leave you feeling and they can leave you hurting at, at just how absurd sometimes reality is. And in this particular book, which is Sex Panic and the Punitive State, Lancaster wrote this. I Before this book came out, I remember writing a chapter, reading a chapter that came out in another book. It came out in New Landscapes of Inequality and it was a chapter that was gonna be in another form in this particular book. So I remember knowing this book was gonna be good before it came out. And Lancaster was friends with my advisor, so what I'm about to tell you is gossip. Don't, I haven't fact-checked this, I just know that in 2008-ish, 9-ish, my advisor tells us this story, and I'm gonna tell it to you because when I read Lancaster, this shapes how I read Lancaster and how I think about the fact that this man who he'd written on um, the nature of sex, that book in which he goes after pseudoscience and all of the ways in which people are obsessed with genes and genomania and the need to like find the gay gene, for example. Like he's gone after bad science and, and this desperate attempt to to geneticize not, not only the biological, but the sociological. And he's also, his first book was my favorite book when I was in the field. It was on, um, it's called, oh my gosh, no puede ser. His first book is called, it's because I can't think of it in English. It's um, Life is Hard. That's it. My mom saw this book once. I never let it go for like four years of living in, and being in grad school. And my mom says, what a stupid title. That's so obvious. Life is hard. But it's a really smart title because it's a translation of a phrase from Spanish, la vida dura, la vida es dura. It means all sorts of things, a multiplicity of things. It ends up being the study of families in Nicaragua. Um, and it was like the most eloquent, best thing I'd ever read by that point in time might still be. And I wanted to write a dissertation like it. Right. OK, so I know Roger Lancaster as a kind of a Latin Americanist scholar who studies family structure. He's always done like gay and LGBTQIA studies really well. Um, 
he's done this, let's go after the sociobiologists and the evolutionary psychologists really well. And all of a sudden he's writing a book on moral panics and it felt like it came out of nowhere. So back to the story, my advisor says to us, this is what happens. Lancaster's in a relationship with a man who is Mexican American and he's an elementary school teacher and he was accused of some sort of act that is pedophilia. I don't know how extreme this was. I have no idea what the accusation was. The gossip was, the man was falsely accused. This is Roger Lancaster's life partner at the time. And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter that there's no evidence. It doesn't matter that there's no trial. It doesn't matter. None of this matters. The accusation is enough to radically alter this man's life for the rest of time, right? And that has to do with the moral panic around pedophilia. And so that's why this chapter that you just read really has um, sex panic and particularly panic in response to pedophilia at its center. And I wanted to say that to you. Lancaster and this partner ended up moving to Mexico for a lot of years. I think Lancaster, I'm not sure if he took a leave of absence or a really long extended sabbatical he might have been able to do that he's a badass in the field again i don't think a university would ever let him go um but it, the united states became unlivable for him and his partner so they relocated for several years and that is it is in line with that story even if my details are totally mixed up and hazy um it is in line with that gossip if you will the the tone and voice and and also just the motivation to do this research and write this really like bitingly critical piece that you guys read by Roger Lancaster for last week right so Nicholas for example you were really thankful for that read and I want to say I'm really thankful for you expressing that to me if you want the entire book I can get you the book if you want just a single chapter from the other book that came out before this book that will blow your mind write me and tell me you want it and I'll get it to you it's harder to find that's why it's not what I taught also I just wanted you to have this kind of overview of moral panics um so there that I did it um what else do I want to say to you guys here? I want to say that Bella and Eli, you guys both asked questions that I thought were interesting and got us thinking about moral panic and how it happens at the individual level. Bella, does moral panic happen depending on a person's character? What is the psychological cause for it to happen? Eli, why are some folks more inclined to believe conspiracy theories than others? Um, those are really interesting questions. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to JSTOR. I'm going to go to advanced search. I'm going to click under the like where you can pick journals, I'm gonna click psychology so I get the 26 psychology journals in JSTOR and I'm gonna run a search for moral panic. I did that and I thought I was gonna get a bunch of research, people studying who's susceptible to moral panics. It's not what I got, I got 20 articles. Um, and those articles mostly stem from one particular case that I'm gonna describe for you in just a little bit. Let me hold that thought. So let me say to you here instead that Moral panic was a concept that was coined by a sociologist, Stanley Cohen, in a book he wrote in 1971 titled Folk Devils and Moral Panic. And in that book, here's where you can just pick. What do you think the first ever book about moral panics? What do you think the fear um, that caused somebody to create this concept, to coin this phrase, to come up with this idea that moral panics are a thing. Like, what would the cause be? What would be the, the fear-inspiring thing that got us to moral panics in the first place, right? Maybe you're thinking witches. It's not witches. What else could it be? 
And all right, if you give up, it was Stanley Cohen wrote this book about the mods and the rockers in the UK in the 1960s. And so he's writing about this fear that was like widespread amongst the quote unquote adults um, in the UK at this time period. You've got these two generations. These are post-war mostly middle-class, mostly white youth in these subcultural groups, the mods and the rockers. And the mods I always think of as pre-glam rock. I think of them as glam. You've got, if you run out of things to watch on YouTube, put mods and rockers in. You can get a ton of documentary footage. There are entire documentaries about the clashes between these groups. Um, they're famous clashes at some beach somewhere between these groups. So if you run out of stuff to watch, you might like it. In any case, mods, picture... Um, teenagers, young 20-something-year-olds who they're working and at this point in time you've got this really stable economy in the UK, this is post-war UK again, and so they're not needing to work to give their money back to their family, they've got expendable incomes and what they're doing is they're doing things like buying clothes, they're having style, they're, right, they're, I don't know, going out dancing and um, those are the mods. And then the rockers, when I close my eyes, I picture black leather jackets, and I picture motorcycles. Um, not level like Harley Davidson, more level like, again, teenagers in the UK in the 1960s. Kind of like a little bit Elvis Presley vibe, but less pretty. More of the like rocker Elvis Presley, right? Smoking cigarettes on, like maybe there's, you've got like a dude and his girlfriend behind him both in black leather jackets on a motorcycle. Like that's my image of the rockers. And so this book by Cohen, in which he coins this term, moral panic, is all about this and the fear that um, these two groups of youth have created, or, or that has been created around them, however you want to see it. Really, it's that. It's that has been created around them. And um, this is why people say often, like, let's call this media panic or media moral panic instead of just moral panic, because the media plays such a key role. And all of that then is to say, I think both Bella, Eli, um, the reason I think that people aren't looking at this at the individual level is because I think that always it's been understood to be something that happens en masse. It's what a moral panic is by definition is something that's massive that includes a community or a sub-community or a society, like everybody gets taken up by this. And so it's not a like some people fall prey to it and some people don't. And all right, Eli, just to clarify, I know you were asking specifically about conspiracy theories. Um, I didn't do that advanced search in JSTOR, so maybe there is a literature about why particular individuals you um, fall prey to or, or are allured by conspiracies. I'm not sure. Um, a couple of you wrote about your own fascination with conspiracy theories, even as kind of outsiders looking in. And so that would be interesting, too, to talk about. Like, when are they intriguing and when are they dangerous? Um, is there a line? All right, pause. Um, or who's allowed? Who, who's allowed to be intrigued by them? And who maybe just doesn't have space to be intrigued by them or, or time or I don't know. That can go in so many different directions. If we were live, we would do it. Um, let's go back to... Why I think there aren't studies of moral panics and individuals and, and what makes individuals susceptible is because I just think those studies are about individuals and fear and how function fear functions or anxiety functions in individuals or why people are drawn to breaking news, for example. 
Um, once you start calling something a moral panic, you're already thinking at the societal level. You've already named this phenomenon that includes so many people that you're not picking out individuals. And instead you're asking questions like, what does this do for society? Why does this happen? And I want to use that to get to Bennett's question, how can we know in real time when we are in the middle of a moral panic? And here I want to say to you, Bennett, that my knee-jerk answer is to tell you we're always in the middle of a moral panic. We're always in the middle of several moral panics. And so the project isn't really to know when we're in the middle of a moral panic, but it's to figure out how to identify moral panics. Um, and Audrey, then from your free write, you wrote, today, I feel like we're watching the rise of another moral panic, specifically in regards to queer people, quote unquote, grooming children to become queer. There's one, right? So Bennett, there's one example. Let's stop. Let's think about that. Is that a moral panic right now? And how do we decide if it is or isn't? I would say what we do is we look at how widespread the expression of this fear is on the internet, for example. And then simultaneously, um, we might look at evidence. Like, can we find evidence that people are, that queer people are grooming children to become queer? Um, and if we can't, yet we find this fear widespread on the internet, we can probably say, yeah, this is a moral panic. We're in it right now. Um, especially if the posts to the internet are like yesterday and today and tomorrow, right? This is totally something we're living right now. And then another example, Audrey, that you give that I thought was interesting to think into, you say, more broadly, a panic over anything deemed quote unquote woke. And I thought we'd pause for a second and think, is there a moral panic around being woke? Um, I've talked through this a couple times, thinking about what I wanted to say to you, and I keep arriving at this problem. I think there's definitely become a stigmatization of being quote-unquote woke, and I think that was an explicit campaign. I think that was a project that got started and went viral on the internet. Um, I'm not sure if it's a panic, and I'm not sure then where the line between panic and stigma stigmatization is. Um, I think that both can be equally dangerous. And so when you start to stigmatize, if woke more generally means, and I haven't stopped you guys, I've lived outside of the US for a long time. And so I kind of have a sense of how people use woke as derogatory, but I'm probably not as there as you are. I kind of just don't pay attention to that conversation because I think it's gross. Um, but if woke means in general, someone who is trying to be attentive to, let's say, unlearning and relearning and someone who is trying to explicitly be informed in the best ways that one can be informed in 2022. And if woke means being, I don't know, aware and empathic and politically correct, but that's the wrong term, really, that, that wording is awkward, but you know what I mean when I say politically correct? Like, is woke trying to be politically correct for the right reasons, not for political reasons. Um, is woke all of those things? Is woke sort of a necessary status through which some people have to pass if we want to get to a decolonized world? If so, stigmatizing woke disempowers that process because suddenly people that should be aspiring to be woke are instead fearful of the category, am I going to get called out for being quote unquote woke? And so stigmatization can be really dangerous, it can be really effective, it can cripple movements that might be positive. And again, I'm speaking to you from a place of, 
I'm so many thousands of kilometers away from you guys and nobody talks about woke in Argentina. All right. So, so do with what I've just postulated as you will. Um, and, and then the question is, is there really a panic around this? And this is where too, we can say, are, are some people panicked about it? Is anybody panicked about it? Maybe mainstream United States citizenry right now isn't panicked about woke, but is there a population on the radical right, for example, that, that really feel, feels fear and is panicked about this? Then maybe we can call that a moral panic. That's a really hazy way of saying to you, I don't know about the second one. I think it's interesting to think too think through and I'm interested to know too what you guys think. Um, I wanted to jump now to Abriana. You talk about alienation and I think it's interesting because this too gets to um, why people might, this is a little bit about the individual level. Why are individuals drawn to conspiracy theories? Maybe this starts to answer your question better than I did, Eli, for example. Abriana writes, I've read that Americans are more alienated now than ever and that there has been a loss of true community, whatever that might mean for each demographic across the board in this country. When thinking about QAnon and other quite frankly dangerous conspiracy groups who believe these things and subsequently try to write them, quote unquote, write them, make right the things they see wrong, um, Abriana asks, is loneliness and wanting a sense of belonging another significant factor of moral panics? So something that enables them. Maybe it's not just about people in power having the ability to channel the media and to kind of plant these seeds of panic, but maybe it's also from the other side about this need of so many individuals who feel alienated, who feel lonely, to cling to something. Um, I suspect that you could find um, a lot of data supporting that. Um, is that the only reason people believe conspiracy theories? Is that the only reason people um, participate in moral panics? I would also suspect you're going to find that no, um, but it could be an important reason. One thing I did want to say to you here is I think, I'm thinking all the way back to Marx again in the middle of the 19th century, writing about capitalism as alienating. Marx had written that did write that, um, take for example the, all right, this is me paraphrasing. Marx's argument is that, in my wording, um, a shoemaker pre-capitalism made a shoe from start to finish. And so he had, in the end, this product, something he had made and he could relate to it and he was kind of self-actualized through it. It was like, this is a shoe, this is the product of my labor, I've done something with that labor. Here, you can wear that shoe, I can see it, that reaffirms me as the maker and, also just reaffirms like my use of time to make that shoe. And Marx says, capitalism comes along and all of a sudden you've got factory lines and you've got individuals sitting along factory lines and they're putting widgets into holes over and over and over again from punch in to punch out. And it's the same movement. And so maybe thousands of shoes get made on that factory line in a day, but there's no shoemaker. There's no individual who made a shoe, who sees a shoe on the street, who says, I made that shoe. There are individuals who put widgets into holes over and over and over and over and over again. So they go home and there's no sense of accomplishment. Um, there's no sense of, I can recognize myself in that final project, that shoe, because that shoe isn't what you made. You put a widget in a hole over and over again. And so I thought I'd start there, Abriana, to say, if I can go all the way back to Marx in the middle of the 19th century and see this like rising fear that men are more alienated in this particular moment that they ever have been before, and on top of that, that this particular economy structure that is 
taking form and becoming predominant. This is necessarily going to continue to alienate people. Um, If I can go back that far, other people who spend more time hanging out with philosophers way before Marx can, I suspect, go back much further, hundreds and maybe thousands of years than I can, and I bet they can find examples of thinkers, scholars being really worried about human beings being more alienated in X particular minute moment than ever before. Um, I also often teach the um, Toffler's book, Future Shock from the 1970s, and that's a book where the conclusion is, you know, if there's this kind of panic about fax machines and information glut and things are moving faster than they ever have before. It's the same fear we have of the internet now in that book is a fear of the fax machine and, and how fast, how much information people have access to at that point in time, right? This is, again, the late, this is the 1970s and people are freaking out about having access to too much information. Um, but also they're starting to think about things like alienation and misinformation and um, and so I wanted to use that. And then I wanted to give you one more example. There's a book that came out in 2000, right at the end of my college career by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. And this was a book that the year it came out, it was already viral. And this is before the internet was so good at making things go viral. This was just a book that dropped at the exact moment everybody wanted to read it. Um, Bowling Alone, it was all about the coming apart of the social fabric of the United States, this kind of disintegration of social networks and community and how people were retreating into their homes and watching TV instead of going out to their bowling clubs. And it kind of set off a panic. And maybe we can even call that one a moral panic. Um, In any case, it left people thinking they were living in a moment in which human beings were more alienated and isolated than they ever were before. And I want to say all of this to all of you here uh, because... I think it's important to remember that a lot of these concerns that we have, and I'm not saying feeling alienated is a moral panic. I think that there are lots of reasons that we should feel alienated. And I think probably in every single case that I've just cited, people were probably, they might've been right to think that they were more alienated then than ever before. But what I want all of us here to do is to recognize that this is a kind of a shared experience that we have with people at least 170 years before now, right? They also lived that experience of, wow, is like the social fabric just coming undone? Like, do we, are we losing community? Are we losing our our groupness? Are we becoming these isolated, lonely individuals? And so if that experience it is something I can locate through so many different examples through time, then that also maybe reinforces this, why are moral panics cyclical? Why do we keep coming back to the same moral panics? Which was something that, Abriana, you asked too up front. Why do we keep coming back to the same moral panics that have plagued us as a society for so long? Ryan, you asked similarly, when we think of moral panic and the effects on our nation, how can we reflect this to our current day issues and not repeat history? Like, what can we learn from the past and, and and grab onto now so we're not just doing this again. In different ways, you're both asking this, like, how do we get out of this loop? And I want to say to you, like, if something, Abriana, you suggest that's bringing people to panic or to conspiracy theory or to false knowledge is this need to belong to a community, um, that would make sense that we're seeing the same moral panics over and over and over again. We're seeing human beings feeling isolated, feeling hyper-individualized whether they are or not or, or to whatever extent at that particular moment they are and potentially clinging to something. Um, I think that's a really interesting explanation to continue to 
consider. And then the question becomes, okay, so how do we get out of this loop? And one question, one answer would be, um, what can we do so that no matter who publishes the next pop book saying, oh my God, we're more alienated than we ever have been before, um, that doesn't go viral. It doesn't resonate with people. People read that, see that title, and they're like, well, I don't feel alienated. Like, no, that's not my life, or that's not us, or that person, that sociologist, or that Karl Marx, or that Robert Putnam, or that... I don't know, pop writing for everyone author totally got it wrong. I've got my community locked down and I feel connected. Like maybe is the fix or, or one key fix to this problem of cyclical moral panics really about um, all human beings finding their people? And then if so, is that possible? Um, what does society need to look like to make that happen? And here I want to drop another book rec to all of you. I used this book last semester in Liberal Arts Advanced Seminar, the community version. It's by Mia Birdsong, and it is titled How We Show Up. And it's a really great, really um, smart, personal, very personal, filled with personal anecdotes, but also based on really good research, book by Mia Birdsong about, um, not about building community, not about making community, but about finding community. One of the points of departure for this book is this assertion that, you know what, some, and she's borrowing from someone else, this idea that community always already exists. And so we don't need to make community. We need to figure out how to find it um, and, and maybe how to be a part of it, right? And how to, and, and I like the book. I won't talk at length about it. Know that on YouTube, there's a really good book talk. It's one hour long. If you write me and say, send me the book, talk by Mia Birdsong, I will send it to you. I've got to go find it. Um, I think next semester in the class, maybe instead of having students read the book, I'm going to give them the talk and say, if you have time for the book, go read it. Gerald Running told me, don't teach books in that class. It doesn't go well. So um, I'm going to learn my lesson. But that said, it's a really good book. It's not an academic book. It's not written for academia. It almost feels like a smart self-help book, but in the good way. It leaves you thinking, I can do this. It leaves you filled with ideas that are just about like inviting your friends over and having dinners and making those dinners repeated so that, so that you're continually in conversations and not in conversations about anything, but like having good, productive, useful conversations to all of you in the middle of a pandemic or not, right? Um, so know that that book exists and maybe if everybody in the whole world read that book and um, learned from Mia Birdsong and the examples that she puts forth, like... Maybe that's part of the fix. All right, I digress. Um, other things I wanted to talk about. Kaylee, you wrote about conspiracies. Can they ever be good? This is my rewording. Is it bad to laugh at them? Um, Jojo, and your free write, you write, in my experience, conspiracy theory has become a way to engage deeper into a work and to actively participate in that work. There is a lot of research that goes into crafting theories. The way that the audience engages in art is also affected by theorists, and those theories intrigue the audience enough to seek out the work themselves if they hadn't before. I think that's really interesting. Like, what can we learn from conspiracy theories, from how they come into being, from how they take root? Can we step back and study them and analyze them and just be interested in them as social constructs and, and think about their power over people? And, and can we learn from that? I think that's a really interesting project. And then can we use that? Can we borrow that into our art making, for example, our science writing, for example? Um, something about conspiracy theories works, right? I remember this makes me think of teaching a class once on a sex, gender, sexuality course when I taught chapters from, oh my God, what is that book that went viral? Fifty Shades of Grey. And I was teaching really good writing on like fiction writing. I did a whole week on 
writing sex in fiction. And I was teaching really good, like some of the smartest, best, um, most alterna fiction sex scenes there. We were doing like BDSM. We were doing all this stuff. This was Chicago. This was School of the Art Institute of Chicago. It was a little bit more radical audience. Um, and I put Fifty Shades of Grey in the middle because this was 2014, 15. So everybody knew what that book was. And I can tell you the truth. I couldn't even read the chapter. Maybe some of you know this book and have read it and maybe you enjoyed it. But my question to students was, okay, so why does this go viral? Why does this create a $7 billion boom in a sex toy industry, right? Why does this become a book that's translated into all of these languages all over the world, all over the world, when you can stop and look at this other writing and say, okay, but these authors were better writers, but these authors are engaging even like, like if people wanted to read about BDSM, why didn't they go to this place? Why didn't they go to this author, right? And so the question was like, what is it that makes um, this book good? What is it that makes this like terribly written, totally viral book, quote unquote, good? And I think we can ask that of conspiracies too. That's what I want to say. Um, you guys, this is how I'm going to move on. I have a little one-year-old that just woke up. I want to talk to you quickly about Freud because that's where we are heading. And then whatever we didn't get to on moral panics today, we can come back to later. Keep asking questions. Let's keep thinking about these things. Um, Freud and psychoanalysis. We're going to transition. We're going to spend two weeks with Freud. It's going to be really easy to criticize Freud. And I don't want you to hold back. I do want you to read Freud critically. But I also want you to know um, that I think what's more useful to us, and you can choose to agree or not, but I think it would be useful to us to stop and try to figure out, is there anything in psychoanalysis, um, a smarter psychoanalysis that could be useful to us? That's my question for you. So as you engage with the sources, as you watch the film, etc., laugh, cringe, do all of these things. Um, next week too, we're going to be reading Freud in his own voice. And next week, so at the end of this week, I'm asking you to do an archival dig to present a rich in symbols myth to all of us. And then you can choose next week whether you want to psychoanalyze that myth or you want to psychoanalyze a myth that somebody else posed. If, if you think somebody else found a better one, you can use that too. But so if this week you are doing that archival dig and finding a myth rich in symbols, next week, instead of problem posing, so for Wednesday, I'm asking you guys just to pick one of the myths and to go through it and do a kind of a Freudian analysis, not in essay form, but in list form. Like pick out the symbols and then tell us what Freud or a psychoanalyst would say they mean. So it's gonna be a relatively fast write. Again, not an essay, it's a list. Find the symbol, tell us what it means in psychoanalytic thinking. And then for Saturday, for Perdon, Sunday, they're both Sunday. Oh my gosh, in my head, these are still Wednesday, Sunday. So the list is for Sunday at 6 p.m. And then for Sunday by midnight, my ask is for you just to put together a drawing. We're going to go back and look at Remedios Varro. We're going to look at Leonora Carrington. We're going to look at Remedios Varro. I said that Frida Kahlo is the other big hitter, surrealist painter from Mexico, the middle of the 20th century, um, who was really influenced by Freud and psychoanalysis. And they were thinking with Freud in their painting. And so I want us to play at that, like, what is thinking and, and being fascinated? Let's pretend we're not repulsed and let's pretend we're fascinated by this thinking. Let's pretend we really believe this can become a new way of unpacking the human brain, of unpacking more than the brain, the mind, pardon, that was the word to use. Let's pretend that we're arriving at these theories that are going to allow us to see into the human mind as we never have before. Um, also stop to consider things that were really radical about Freud's thinking. For example, is how universalist it was. There were other people at the same time saying, okay, 
the brain of this man is smaller, the brain of this man is less developed or less modern, the brain of this group of people is this. And Freud wasn't saying that. Freud was saying, look, we have a human brain, we all have the same brain, and it does the same thing, and we can probe it for meaning. Um, so there, that is what, I mean, I don't know if I'm trying really hard to get you to take Freud seriously and positively for two weeks. Maybe I am. Um, we'll keep having this conversation. But so know that we're heading towards this Freudian psychoanalytic list. And then after that, this totally experimental, I don't know how it's going to come out. Just take some time, take an hour or so and try to sketch something out that, that you think you, you could, if you liked Freud, arrive at. Like, how would you weave the symbols together into your making? Um, and again, just like the free write, it's going to be a you can't get it wrong assignment. Okay. Um, apologies if you can hear the baby crying in the back room. background. I gotta go. I will be in touch with you guys soon. Take care. Ciao. Cheers.